God who gave the land, the land, the land, the ground on which we stand. Why should we be beggars with the ballot in our hands? God gave the land to the people. Hi everyone, welcome to the Britain's Got Tenants podcasts. Um, I'm Ben. I'm Sophie. And we run the theatre company On The Button together. This podcast is part of a series which is documenting our work over the last year or so, which is research into um, the housing crisis and the reasons behind the housing crisis and what the housing crisis is doing to people and the whole history of housing and social housing. Um, and this show is going to be on next year in 2016 and it's going to be called Britain's Got Tenants. Um, and today we're talking about protest. Um, we've also got here in our little oh, yes. mini studio, um, Robin Gray. Hello. Hello. And Rachel Rose Reed. Hello. Um, from Three Acres and a Cow. And we're going to be talking to them about their show um, a little bit later on. They're going to do some songs for us. Yeah. Um, but talking of songs, the song that you heard at the beginning was The Land Song, which is a famous 19th century liberal anthem and a protest song about land rights. Um, and we have got really interested in protest. So protest is a really important part of um, yeah. the housing, of, of housing well, and like the history of housing. Yeah, yeah, it was like an inspiration for the show. At the, like when we started thinking about uh, this show, it was basically a couple of um, housing campaigns that got us thinking about it. So the first one being, um, which started in 2013 uh, from the Focus East 15 mums. So you might have heard of them, but they were campaigning against the privatisation of their homes. Yeah, they were. And yeah. they took over a, an estate in uh, the Carpenters estate in East, East London. Yeah, there were a bunch of single mums who were being, um, their hostel got shut down and they were being sent all over the country, like far away from their families and support networks. Um, and then, then there was another campaign at the time uh, on the New Era estate in Hoxton, which was a big American developer was going to buy this estate and put like triple the rents, and most of the people that lived there wouldn't have been able to afford there uh, to live there anymore. So at the same time that we were learning about these campaigns, Ben was also reading a play by John McGrath yep. called The Cheviot, The Stag, and The Black, Black Oil. Um, and Ben's going to tell us a bit about why he thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's... Um I felt it really connected with uh, these campaigns that were going on in London. John McGrath talks about uh, the Cheviot sheep becoming more valuable to the landowners in Scotland, so this is up in the Highlands, um, than the people who lived on the land. And this resulted in the people who lived in the Highlands being cleared out, um, often in very violent ways. Um, there's, lo like, there's lots of evidence and, and documentation about terrible, terrible things happening to people as they got moved off. Um, and this got us thinking about property uh, being more valuable to property owners than people who live in that property and how people's lives are being blighted in the same way by these big economic forces. Um, yeah, people being, being forced out and being made homeless um, in order that other people should be able to make lots of money. Um, and we've got a little bit uh, from the Cheviot, which is a song. 
Oh, you landleaguer men of Rossi Sky and Lewis, are you dead? Are you gone? Were your struggles all for nothing? Are you dead? Are you gone? I, the Laird, has the land, and the Polis are his servants, but we'll fight once again, for this country is the people's, yes, we'll fight once again. And I want we, we wanted to choose that bit because because it's a song, because this uh, this show, The Chief of the Stag and the Black Black Oil, is told in the story and song. And that's something that we want to talk about as well in this podcast, um, about how stories and song uh, have been kind of, they pass on the, the flame of protest from past to present to future. Um, and that's something that's that's important and interesting. And we'll be coming back to that later on. There are lots of stories that keep coming back to us with all of the people that we interview. And one in particular that I really like is one about the diggers. And I was interviewing a man called Jonathan Rosenberg, who's really involved in the West Ken and Gibbs Green estate campaign. And he knows lots about the diggers. He's very interested in the history of protest within the UK. And here's Jonathan now actually just telling us a little bit more about the diggers and what they did. And there was a group called the diggers. And the diggers, um, they argued that um, the land should be held in common um, and that everybody had a right to access to um, what uh, Gerard Wynne Stanley, who was their leader, called um, Earth's Common Treasury. Um, and that it was the, uh, you know, the landlords, the priests, um, the establishment who had uh, excluded the common people from, um, you know, accessing the means of their livelihood. And um, they, the diggers, went and famously planted themselves on St George's Hill in Surrey, uh, where they planted vegetables. Um, and this <laughs> this uh, extraordinarily threatening act <laughs> of growing <laughs> vegetables, um, this is why they were called the diggers. Part of that driver for that was they were very hungry, um, so it wasn't just something ideological to do. Um, you know, they literally did need to grow some vegetables, um, but the army was sent in and they were dispersed. I think that's a really lovely story about about protest from the from the seventeenth century. Yeah, and even though we've been speaking mainly to housing campaigners nowadays, it's really useful to go back and look at the longer history of campaign and protest, which is mostly linked to, to land um, back in the day. And that's something that I spoke to with Doreen Massey, who is the Emeritus Professor of Geography at uh, the Open University. And we met her at this housing conference, um, and then I met up with her later to, to speak about the history of protest and the wider historical and economic uh, forces behind the housing crisis. And here she is. One of the things that happens under neoliberalism is that another long-term pillar of the British class structure, which is landed capital, has joined up with finance capital. Landed capital, I mean, British, ordinary British people own very, very little of this country we call ours. It's mostly owned by corporations, pension funds and the old aristocratic elite and so forth. And during the last 30, 40 years, Landed and finance capital have very much got together, find, you know, 
they've absorbed each other in a sense. Landed capital has become equally globalised and the two together have become astoundingly dominant over the structure of the British economy. And so in, in a sense, I think, when we're thinking about the housing problem in London, well, we must fight all the smaller battles. We must fight the individual cases. We must also draw out of them the fact that this battle here now is, is part of a long struggle against money capital and against land ownership that is endemic in centuries of history in this country. And I think that, in some ways, it's dismaying because we never won yet. But on the other hand, I think it gives it a kind of um, a structural strength to think you're part of that, you're part of that resistance to these powers that be. And I think that's a really good transition into talking about... Um our guest artists, uh, Robin and Rachel, and their show Three Acres and a Cow, because you kind of cover the, you, you talk about this centuries-long struggle, and uh, yeah, can you just give us uh, a little rundown of what your show's about, and yeah. Well, uh, Three Acres and a Cow is a history of lamb rights and protest in folk song and story, and basically for various reasons Robin and I looked at the history that we learned particularly about the history of English people in school. I came from a family that came here about 100 years ago that were refugees and that knew the importance for themselves of carrying their stories and folk stories and folk traditions with them and and um, was quite aware growing up that a lot of my friends were just sort of had a gap in that in that area of people's history and the only history that was being received was whatever is taught in school. And one of the quotes we give at the beginning of the show is from Ben Ockrey, the writer, who says that individuals and nations are composed of the stories that they feed themselves. And if you change the story, you will change that individual or nation for the good or the bad. And I, th I think that's incredibly powerful. I think... And if you constantly hear stories about people that are quite socially far removed from you, so very high, high up and wealthy landowners, if that's your main knowledge of English history, then you don't really know where you fit into that as a normal person. And it's incredibly powerful to be given stories that you can connect with and a heritage that you can connect with. It's not about blood um, inheritance, who you're related to, but about people that might have had similar struggles once you've seen other people have dealt with these struggles, then you too can both be depressed <laughs> that this has happened before and also inspired that people have fought for that regardless and sometimes, hopefully, won what they were seeking. Okay. Can, you, can you tell us a little bit about how the show came together? Like how you came to work on it together? Yeah, I mean, um, I started having an interest in 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 growing food and, and working the land and from that became aware um of issues around access to land and land rights and I um sort of became a little bit sort of radicalized by learning about the inequality of land ownership in this country and you know the origins of our housing crisis being a, a distribution of land crisis and uh, the first um ever sort of protest action direct action thing I went along to there was a a choir from France singing all these beautiful French people songs of resistance and that was really 
beautiful and heartening because um, there were about twice as many police as there were us. And, you know, you know music is a useful thing to, uh, to bring us all together in times when we're challenging the status quo. And as soon as the, the French choir uh, stopped singing, the English people just kind of resorted to, what do we want? Not this. <laughs> when do we want it? Now. And I was like, oh, you're... <laughs> you're choking is that honestly the best we could do and i just remember that day just being like okay i'm gonna spend the next however long it takes finding the songs that you know our ancestors would have sung when they were challenging oppression and inequality and teach them to as many people as i can and hopefully raise the bar on our public consciousness when it comes to um serenading policemen and I was lucky enough to be introduced to Rachel a little bit down the line because um, it seemed that we were we were sort of heading in the same direction from different starting points and now sort of going in parallel. Yeah, I, I'd written, just before I met Robin, I, I'd written a piece uh, that I did at Latitude with a choir that was called London Stone, which stretched from the Peasants' Revolt to Occupy... I love trying to work out how to shake the dust off folk culture and have it not so much be connected with cable knit sweaters, nothing wrong with cable knit sweaters, but actually for it to be a living, breathing thing, um, which I think is a lot of what we're doing and actually re-empowering people, for example, to sing. Some people have no problem, but a lot of people I've met in this pop culture age have become a bit... They think that singing is only for someone who can sing like Beyonce and... Singing together is an incredibly powerful part of the history of people's uh, empowerment. Uh, and it's, uh, well, it's a bit harder to move people on for singing together, isn't it? Talking of which, um, The World Turned Upside Down is probably going to be our next song. So we'll go into that, I think. Lovely. In 1649 to St George's Hill a ragged band they called the diggers came to show the people's will. They defied the landlords, they defied the laws. They were the dispossessed reclaiming what was theirs. We come in peace, they said, to dig and sow. We come to work the lands in common and to make the waste ground grow this earth divided. We will make whole, so it may be a common treasury for all. The sin of property we do disdain. No man has any right to buy and sell the earth for private gain. By theft and murder, they took the land. Now everywhere the walls spring up at their command. Poor take courage, you rich take care. This earth was made a common treasury for everyone to share. All things in common, all people one. We come in peace, the orders came to cut them down. So the, the Diggers is about land rights, and there's a bit in your show where you talk about how land rights and housing rights kind of basically become two different things as there's um, an exodus from rural areas to cities. Uh, could you take us through that a little bit? Yeah, and it was, I mean, the biggest migration this island's ever seen 
around a third of the um the, the population of of the country moved from rural areas into towns and cities in a sort of 40 year period at the end of the 1700s and early 1800s which i mean that's just such a staggering amount of people that we really can't begin to get our heads around and so la- land and housing rights become two separate issues because up till that point there was a sort of assumption a memory that actually wherever you live is also where you grow your food uh and so it's sort of all one parcel but now you start to have people living in a place where they can't grow their food there isn't enough space they're in slums and back to back um or even in villages sometimes they've lost a lot of their common lands they would have grown food on so houses and land rights sort of tail off into two directions which is where we sort of lose the memory of how all these things are connected You've got another um, really great uh, protest story that you talk about in Three Acres and a Cow, um, which is a personal favourite of Ben and Ben and mine, um, which is about um, Don Don Cook and Arthur. Arthur Ray. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, I mean, Cook and Roe were two former soldiers who were living in. St Pancras social housing and that's kind of where Camden Council is now and uh, Camden that council St Pancras Council wanted to triple the rent of its social housing tenants and they created a protest in which they tried to protect vulnerable uh, vulnerable tenants by saying to them you know keep paying rent if you need to but we're not going to and anyone that wants to join us please do um so they barricaded the buildings uh, in order to prevent the bailiffs from getting in. Uh, eventually, police had to come in through the roof, but there was an there was a lot of public support as well, and it was something that was broadcast on television. Uh, my dad remembers seeing it on TV. So actually, oh. Rachel's just found an amazing um, video, which we'll link on our website. Um, which was all about these, uh, the kind of, the, I guess they've called them, they've called them riots. It's a fairly biased bit of journalism, I'd say. We should but say what um, year it is. I don't feel we've said what year it is. Did we? Okay, I mean, great. I think it started in 1959, but 1960 is the heat of it. As true a story, I'll relate. Hey ho, cook and roll. How the landlord told Don Cook one night. Hey ho, cook and roll. You must answer questions nine. Hey ho, cook and roll. To see if there's flat is yours or mine. Hey ho, cook and roll. Hey ho, tell them no with a barbed wire fence and a piano. Took a thousand cops to make them go. Three cheers for cook and roll. What is higher than a tree? Hey ho, cook and roll. And what is lower than a flea? Hey ho, cook and roll. My rent is higher than a tree. Hey ho, cook and roll. And the landlord's lower than a flea. Hey ho, cook and roll. Hey ho, tell them no with a barbed wire fence and a piano. Took a thousand cops to make them go. Three cheers for cook and roll. Oh, now I've lost my board and bed. Hey ho, cook and roll. I'll barricade the streets instead. Hey ho, cook and roll. So all you tenants settle in. Hey ho, cook and roll. Keep up the fight, you're bound to win. Hey ho, cook and roll. Hey ho, tell them no with a barbed wire fence and a piano. Took a thousand cops to make them go. Three cheers for cook and roll. So cook and roll are in 1960, and we're going to rewind a little bit till just after the Second World War, which is something that Sophie uh, looked into. Yeah, so um, after the Second World War, 
um, because of the blitz, there was a huge amount of bomb damage. And as a result, there was um, a massive housing crisis because, you know, in London alone, there were a million houses that were destroyed or, or damaged. But this was a UK wide issue. Um, rationing also meant that there were no materials to build new homes, uh, which is something that the gov government at the time was really struggling with. Um, and this led to a squatting movement, which I had absolutely no idea about uh, and I think is just really fascinating. So throughout the UK, 40,000 people squatted on old army bases um, that weren't being used anymore. And in a documentary that I, I was watching called Their World This Time, which is all about housing post-World War II, um, there's some fantastic extracts that we've just pulled from it, and, and here they are. Now a story from Scunthorpe in Lincolnshire, which Movie Town presents without prejudice or comment. This is a disused military gun site, which has been taken over by people urgently needing somewhere decent to live. I understand there are about 2,000 families at Scunthorpe awaiting home. Some of these squatters, you might call them, have apparently taken the law into their own hands. A committee has been formed by these people under the chairmanship of the first resident. And Mrs. Clark, your husband, he's ex-serviceman? Yes. yes, he had five and a half years in the services. And why did you come here? Because we were all in one bedroom, five of us. We had three children and the eldest one's 13. And uh, it wasn't right that she should be in the same bedroom as her daddy and I. We also had no sanitary arrangements and no lighting, and we had to carry our water a hundred yards. Ex-servicemen and all that, they want a decent place to come home for, don't they? What do you think about it? Well, on private property, I think it's all wrong, but uh, I've taken over army camps. I mean, they're entitled to. After all, they've had six years fighting in the army, and they're entitled to a home, isn't it? <laughs> Peacetime Battle Report. The Siege of London's Ivanhoe Hotel. On the pavement, police, pressmen and squatter sympathisers. Facing government action to evict them, the squatters carry on as best they can. Food supplies come up from below. Wholesale squatting in luxury flats and hotels turns the spotlight on a still desperate housing situation. Labour leaders say lawless acts by squatters can only lead to injustice and anarchy. What I think is really interesting about those videos in particular, the second one, is the way that we think about squatters now. And you wouldn't necessarily think of squatters as being middle class um, people sort of taking over spaces to live. And yet the woman in the second one certainly sounds quite middle class and it's quite surprising. Yeah. It's very 1950s BBC. They're all like, they're really well dressed and, you know, proper family of the time, 1950s family. Yeah, um, with these... And yeah. yeah, these houses that are absolutely kind of pristine, beautifully yeah. and pristine and sort of really yeah. well turned out. And you just, it's not something that we necessarily would think about now. But in terms of talking about successes of, of protest campaigns, as a result of this squatting movement that occurred, the, the government bought in the Requisition Act in 1946, 1947, which meant that local authorities could take over and use buildings and allow people to live there. And... We've got a little link to um, a guy who I spoke to called Paul Burnham. And Paul is part of the Defend Council Housing movement, which we're going to talk a little bit more about later on. But there's a friend of his father who experienced the housing crisis firsthand in that time, the sort of 1950s. And he, we've just got him talking about it a bit more here. My parents lived in what's called a um, two by two, I think they called it. So they shared a house with another couple. This was, when it was the case of all my father's friends. 
and he tells me about one of his workmates called Jimmy Bauer. Jimmy Bauer got married and he took his wife back to his parents' house and they began married life on the landing. A lot of the campaigns that we've spoken to have used squatting as a act of political protest and there have been squatters involved who aren't necessarily uh, campaigners on these campaigns but who have joined the campaigners and a really interesting example of this is Sweets Way. So yeah, on Sweets Way it's really interesting because there are various different groups of people. So this is an estate where the council sold the estate to a private developer, Annington, several years ago. And it was only at the end of last year that Annington decided that they wanted to redevelop it, build some new flats. And these are flats that are not going to be affordable to any of the people that were living on the estate before, which is something, it's a pattern that gets repeated like through London, and there are lots and lots of campaigns about this. So the former residents started a campaign, partly because of this like injustice. They felt that their community was working really well, their estate worked really well, and they couldn't see why they had to move off it and be moved off it and partly because the council was treating them really badly and not rehousing them in suitable housing so they occupied this house on the edge of the estate and they ran their campaign from it and I went there in May to interview several of the people there and it was really there's a really fun atmosphere that lots and lots of kids running about in the garden and stuff real family atmosphere and as more and more of the residents were evicted and forced out. Squatters moved into the estate, so not necessarily people who are directly connected to the campaign, but people for whom squatting is a lifestyle. And when I went back uh, last week, um, so the beginning of September, the atmosphere had completely changed. There's this whole little village or little commune type space it's like a little bit like something that, you know, the Lost Boys out of Peter Pan might have made. It's very kind of DIY and there's like lots of mural art and there's a bathtub with that is made into a piece of art that's out in the middle. And there's a vegetable garden, uh, which is very lush and lots of things growing there. And the squatters have been kind of working with the campaigners and helping them out. And then in the last three weeks, there's a new security company that the developer has employed and sent in this really, really heavy team of security guys. Um, and there have been some clashes with the squatters. One of, there was a young woman there when I visited. She showed me, she was showing me like bruises all the way down her arm, scrapes on her back where she'd been like dragged across the road. So there's a really different atmosphere to May now and it's really tense. This weekend they were having a family day there, kind of community day, and very few families turned up partly because it's quite an intimidating place to be now. And yeah, and that's, that's Sweet's Way at the moment. And it's, it's still ongoing. It's still something that's happening at the moment. So you've met some various different squatters. And I think this guy, Pete, was from... Did maybe you met him at Sweet's Way? Uh, no, I met Pete at a, um, a poetry and slam poetry night um, and spoken word night. He's a spoken word artist. There's this film that, that's about him, uh, which explains about the, the political side of squatting and squatting as an interesting solution for the housing shortage. Anyway, this is him. Public space has been taken away from us. And that's really, really dangerous. So reclaiming space is... Uh, a very potent thing to do and that's one of the reasons why I think squatting is a powerful thing for civil society. 
I've been squatting for about two years and I've lived in around about six buildings. All of those buildings have been owned by property owners or companies who own lots of buildings and have kept those buildings empty for many, many years. And when you see how many empty buildings there are, massive spaces, you can't actually understand why anybody is on the streets. And we have, we're seeing an explosion now of, of homelessness, street homelessness, hidden homelessness. And at the same time, they're trying to throw people out of empty buildings and into prisons. So this is what's so crazy about it. There were times throughout my life as, as a self-employed performing artist where I had to make ends meet by claiming benefit. Sometimes I was on job seekers allowance, sometimes I wasn't. A lot of the time I was on housing benefit. Living in Scots means that I don't have to claim benefits anymore. We're just making use of empty buildings, it's DIY solutions and something maybe that many of us are going to be returning to, more communal ways of living in times of austerity. It's really interesting listening to what Pete said about squatting because it reminds me of something that was being talked about in the Their World This Time documentary. And here's a guy who's talking in the 1940s about using houses that are unused and putting families into them. Well, in my humble opinion, I don't think that whilst there's any, any people in this country require a place to live in, there should be any empty flats whatsoever. And it's not a matter, in my opinion, of... Uh, being right or wrong, it's a question of the people letting the government see that they require these places to be taken over. They mean business. But I guess kind of also what's amazing at that, that time in the 1940s is that the squatting movement actually forced change, whereas the problem now is that that isn't the case because it's criminalised. It's harder to force change through because there's a fear there, whereas before it was, an, it was a definitely a necessity and thousands of people were doing it. And just to come back to Sweet Sway again... Uh, it's interesting, there's like this guy speaking about showing the authorities that it's important to use these empty houses because that's one of the things that they've done there. They've had this little uh, kind of experiment, what they call the model home. Is they've taken one of the homes that's empty and on a budget of £400 and lots of volunteer help uh, from the squatters who are living there as well, which is really nice because there's been this cooperation between people who are squatting on the estate and campaigners they've redone this home and it looks really beautiful. I had a tour around it. Uh, we'll post some photos on our site. And that's really important. It's something that a lot of the campaigns that we've spoken to have talked about, that there are all these empty places and it doesn't take much effort just to do them up and make them livable again. And that's a really important and valuable thing to do. And actually, in lots of the other campaigns that we've been visiting, uh, one of the main things is that people are talking about the fact that you need to refurbish them. They don't need to be de demolished, these, mm. these places. Lots of the houses that we've visited and the estates we've yeah. visited are, are lovely. That they work really well. They work yeah. really well. Yeah. Uh, Ben's got a brilliant blog where you can uh, learn a little bit more about this and we'll put links onto the, our website and you can find that at onthebuttontheatre.org. So over the course of this podcast, we've spoken a lot about the history of protest and songs about things that have happened in the past. But of course, a lot of our research has been uh, speaking to campaigners who are active today. So we thought we'd just like play a few extracts from interviews we've done with campaigners. And the first one we've got is uh, Isha from the Focus East 15 campaign. 
The campaign really, um, well, it, it came into existence when 29 young mums were handed eviction notices from a local hostel um, and they were going to be moved out of London. So, you know, the council expected these young, some of them very vulnerable young people with young children to just you know, be moved out away from their family support network and friends. So that's when the campaign started. So the campaign is about um, highlighting the issues of that's happening in London, uh, highlighting the issues of social cleansing, um, looking at why the carpenter's estate down the road has been left empty for seven or eight years. One of our key demands is the reopen of that estate, reopening up of the tower blocks um, for long-term secure of properly affordable rent. I also spoke to Anna, who's part of the Sweets Way campaign, which uh, I introduced a little bit before. And here she is speaking about how they set up their campaign and what it is that they're doing. At first we were sort of like, okay, you can't do anything because it's private property. If they want to destroy the building, they can't build $5 here, that's the right. And then when you start seeing people being treated the way they are, you say, wait a minute. That's not right. And then, thanks God, we had the people, few activists who came together and came to us and say, listen, even though this is private property, the way they're treating you is not right. And it doesn't matter if this is private property or this is cancer property, you still have a right to be treated as a human. So from that, it was very quick. Because we were close before, we sort of organized meeting. And from that meeting, we went all to the council house, uh, to the Barnett homes demanding to uh, to house to house people in this decent places and then it was another meeting and then uh, focus 15 joined us we opened the house the occupation house and from that it was just very very intense last two months but you sort of going there and say okay once you once you started it's very difficult to stop because because uh, from two or three points that you want to change and that you're fighting for, um, it's become more and more obvious that there is, there's more wrong than you, than you would like to, uh, or than you, know, than you thought it is. And this is Paul Burnham again, who I introduced in the podcast earlier. Um, and Paul is part of the Defend Council Housing campaign, which is a nationwide campaign. And here he is just talking a little bit more about it. Well, basically, it was a campaign against stock transfers. The thing that they did, which is very significant, is that they introduced ballots. So the right of the tenants to actually vote on whether the estate or whole housing stock maybe would do a stock transfer. So what then tended to happen was that you'd have campaigns going on in various places around Britain and then the aim of Defend Council Housing is to pull them together and to have a bit of national coordination. So these are just a few of the campaigns that we've spoken to and what's interesting is that they seem to be forming together into this quite radical, exciting political movement um, which covers a whole load of people from different backgrounds and different tenures and this is something that Glyn Robbins, who's just uh, finished a PhD about the housing crisis, was talking to me about in the context of the March for Homes, which took place earlier on this year. I think one of the things about the March for Homes was the way that it began the process of unifying people from different tenures. And we, again, we can't have a situation where the rights of council tenants are counterposed to the rights of private tenants. Yeah. 
you know, we're all entitled to a decent, secure, affordable home. There is a bit of a controversial figure that keeps popping up or who has kept popping up over the last year and attracting media attention. Russell Brand. Mr. Russell Brand. And yeah, it's interesting. Like whatever you think about him and his politics or or whatever, he has helped to amplify um, these these campaigns. And just by being there, his presence attracts a whole load of cameras and reporters. And so he has helped to get these things in the media. Yeah, so that's particularly with um, the New Era Estate, uh, that campaign, and the Focus East 15 Mums. He was really yeah. involved with that. Actually, he's also been involved with uh, Sweets Way. Sweet, with Sweet I think Way he did well, yeah. a, he was part of a, um, a squatting... There was a sleepover there. There was a sleepover. The organised a sleepover at Sweets Way. Um, which the, the press were, were all over. Um it is very useful that they that they have him on board to to highlight their campaign so that it does get into all elements of the press not just you know left wing but it's right wing all parts and that's really important but it does seem sad to note that it does take a controversial celebrity like Russell Brand to um yeah elucidate the problems of housing and the campaigns that these people yeah. that people have going and going to get on. that level of coverage that level of coverage is yeah. the key thing and because We've met lots and lots of campaigners and there are thousands of people all over the UK who are involved in campaigns for affordable and decent housing for all and they don't get the credit that they they really deserve. And Jonathan Rosenberg, who's uh, we spoke about earlier on, who's involved with the West Ken and Gibbs Green campaign, he explains that rather, rather beautifully here. I can't emphasise too much how difficult it is mm. um, to stand up to this sort of thing. Most people have no idea what is involved, you know, and the sacrifices that um, are made um, in all sorts of ways, you know, by standing up to this. Mm. It's very, very, very difficult indeed to mount and sustain a campaign. It's very complicated and it depends, you know, a lot on individuals who are put under uh, unacceptable strain uh, so uh, it should be wherever it, it is you know it, it should be treasured and recognized you know as a as a great thing mm. um, which can evaporate at any moment just as if it had never been there so the final bit of this podcast is we're going to come back to talking about um, protest and song and storytelling and why those those things are important but to lead us into that we've got um, a song uh would you like to introduce a song? It's called The Manchester Rambler, and we think it's, a, it's a, a very beautiful and useful opportunity to talk about a time when some people came together to stand up for their rights and maybe didn't get to see the fruits of that labour within their lifetime, but it did lead to a very significant um, result. I've been over Snowdon, I've slept up on Crowden, I've camped by the Wainstones as well. I've sunbathed on Kinder, been burned to a cinder, and many more things I can tell. My rucksack has oft been my pillow, the heather has oft been my bed. Sooner than part from the mountains, I think I would rather be dead I'm a rambler, I'm a rambler from Manchester way I get all my pleasure the hard 
and way I may be a wage slave on Monday But I have my freedom on Sunday So yeah, there's a... And you sing that song in your show and there's a brilliant part afterwards where you talk about... Um, yeah, this thing that we've been touching on, you know, songs and stories and sowing seeds and things growing in time. Mm-hmm. Could you take us through that? In 1932, uh, 1% of the Peak District was publicly accessible and that was pretty busy on a sunny day. And uh, some people from the British Workers Sports Federation in Manchester and Sheffield decided to do the thing they loved Uh, and use it as protest. So they decided to go for a mass trespass onto Kinder Scout, which is the highest point in the Peak District. They uh, met some gamekeepers, which you heard in the song, on the way up, and uh, on the way back down, met some police, and some of them were put in jail, including Benny Rothman, who was, I suppose, was considered their leader at the time. And then a few weeks later, 10,000 people went out on a mass trespass, and one would think that that would be the high point in in our Hollywood-style films. By the time 10,000 people gather, it's probably nearly the end of the film and everyone's going to live happily ever after. But the journey was a lot longer than that, and it normally is. So, I mean, the first major fruit of that didn't happen until after the Second World War when the national parks were founded, which, again, was beautiful because it involved you know giving people a bit more access to the land. Uh, but... Where, where we sort of really pick up with that story was the 60th anniversary of the Kinder Scout trespass in the um, 80s was, oh no, 90s, I'm lying, my mathematics, 1932 plus 60 is 1992. I got distracted by the cat walking by the window, what can I say? Um, they decided to celebrate the Kinder Scout trespass with uh, another mass trespass and this um, led to the sort of formation of a modern right to roam movement which was one of the first bits of legislation passed by the Labour government um, in the year 2000. And firstly, obviously, as we sort of, you know, we're alluding to a lot of the people who went on the Kinder Scout trespass weren't alive to see that victory. And I only realised recently just quite how significant a victory it was. In 2003, when the legislation, you know, all the mapping had been done and the legislation passed, the amount of public land accessible um, in Yorkshire went from 4% to 64%. And, I mean, that's just such a staggering victory. There aren't many victories. It's really good to find them and celebrate them and also look at what caused them. And as we're saying, you know, um, it took a lot of different people, different generations, but, um, you know, you really can connect up the Kinscout Trespass to the Right to the Rome movement. And um, and that's a that's a pretty, pretty great victory just there. So... I feel like we have been celebrating um, these amazing protests and hearing all of these fantastic stories um, in this podcast today. And um, we love hearing them and we love listening to people retell them and we love retelling them as well. Um, If you, the listener, have any protest stories that you'd like to tell us, please get in touch with us at www.onthebuttontheatre.org and who knows, they might even form a part of our play, Britain's Got Tenants, um, where again, also on our website, you'll find all the information about the stuff we've been talking about today and you'll find links to um, uh, Three Acres and a Cow and 
probably some links, I think, to Rachel and Robin's websites and things. And you've got a performance of your show, Three Acres and a Cow, coming up. Uh, yes, this autumn you can find us in uh, various places around the country. And particularly we have a big gig in London on the 25th of November as part of Parliament Week at Cecil Sharp House. And you can find all of our dates at threeacresandacow.co.uk. So one more massive thank you to Robin and Rachel thank for coming you. and talking us. to us today. It's been brilliant. Uh, so, yeah, bye. <laughs> <laughs> bye, Cheerio. thank you. Bye.